Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to protect the public by enhancing recovery-oriented workforce capacity. On behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to our podcast entitled Scope of Practice. In practical terms, the scope of practice is the description of the processes, procedures, as well as actions that a clinician is permitted to undertake while keeping to the terms of their professional credentialing. For our purposes, we use to describe it the focus of our program. We plan to cover anything and everything that relates to the world of substance use, co-occurring, and other addictive disorders. Our overall goal is to present you, as our audience, discussions and perspectives on topics that you otherwise might not hear. The opinions expressed in this publication are those of the host and the guest and do not necessarily purport or reflect the opinions or views of the Connecticut Certification Board or its directors. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm the executive director of the CCB, and I'm your host for today's program. Jennifer Matisa, author of a 2016 book called Sex and Recovery, A Meeting Between the Covers, has noted that sexuality in the context of recovery is rarely talked about openly, in part because of our broader culture may inhibit us or from sharing our true experiences. Um, And for some, the prospect of sober sex feels like uncharted waters. In the past, individuals in recovery may have rarely had sex without first numbing themselves with drugs or alcohol. And the idea of having an intimate relationship in sobriety is a tremendous and potentially frightening unknown. Given the lack of discussion about the subject, can be an area of great struggle even as people maintain their recovery over long periods of time. We know that in early recovery, it is not uncommon for women in the first three months of recovery to experience both the lowest amount of sexual activity in their adult life, and their interest may also wane during that time. And for men, the first six to 12 months often have a reduced ability to perform is evident. These simple facts, along with any messages and lessons about sex from both family and individual experiences, can exponentially confuse and frustrate an individual in recovery about sexuality and about intimacy. Joining us today is Dr. Julian Koken from LaGuardia LaGuardia Community College, part of the City University of New York. Dr. Koken is a social psychologist by training, specializing in substance abuse treatment research, program evaluation, qualitative health research, and sexual health education. She's worked in a range of applied behavioral health research and service settings, primarily focusing on substance abuse and HIV prevention and care here in the U.S. and internationally. Since 2004, she has delivered motivational interviewing as a therapist on several federally funded behavioral interventions from the National Institutes of Health and Centers for Disease Control, that target HIV prevention, medication adherence, sexual risk behavior, and or drug or alcohol use among a diversity of populations. From 27 to 2010, she directed the MI Treatment Integrity Program at the Center for HIV AIDS Educational Studies and Training, uh, also known as CHEST, in New York City. And And as a project director at CHEST, she developed treatment protocols for federally funded behavioral interventions using MI alone and in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy. Dr. Koken is based in New York City, but works internationally. She earned her bachelor's and master's at Hunter College and was awarded her PhD in social personality psychology at the Graduate Center at the City of New York. Welcome, Dr. Koken. Hi, it's it's great to be here. And wow, I'm 
never been introduced like that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact that I know you uh, personally and professionally, you know, I wanted to make sure that it was it was a good introduction. So that was that was zero. <laughs> <laughs> So to begin, I really want to start with a working definition of sexuality that we'll draw from as we talk. Can you help us with that? Sure. Um, I, sexuality is biopsychosocial, meaning that there are biological aspects of it, psychological aspects of it, social aspects of it. And of course, all of those things are located culturally and historically. Um, and I hope that doesn't sound too fancy. Essentially, what it means is, you know, there are biological and developmental aspects of sexuality. There's our behavior, our thoughts and feelings, um, our physical state, our, uh, and, you know, these encompass things such as our gender identity, our sexual identity, uh, our beliefs and values around sexuality uh, guide our behaviors. So it's safe to say, based on what you just described, um, that although many people will not say it, sexuality and intimacy are a huge part of our lives as adults. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a fundamental part of everybody's life. Um, it's something that is a very, it's a core aspect of, of who we are. Um, and each one of us uh, has, a, you know, our own unique um, sexuality. One of the things that, that, you and I have talked about is, you know, offline is the uh, difficulty in presenting this type of topic as a training. It's not something generally talked about. And when I was doing some research research to interview, um, I found this research study that in 2014, uh, professors at Quinnipiac from CUNY and uh, Kansas University conducted a study uh, on human sexuality as a critical subfield in social work, offering the premise that the taboo the taboo of uh, human sexuality limits the advancement of a cohesive professional discourse and contributes to the continued oppression of marginalized populations. So if social work programs aren't teaching that. Yeah. How are folks to learn? Yeah. Human sexuality is in most social work and, and psychology counseling programs. It's often not its own independent force. Um, it's often folded into other courses, such as courses on development or courses on family and relationships. So most people, when they're getting their training, unless they go to a specialized program that offers, you know, special training in sexuality, most people don't get a lot of training in it. Uh, and even college undergrad programs, there's human sexuality classes, but students aren't usually re- required to take one. Um, and so for some people, the last uh, sexuality training that they got, you know, was, was not very in-depth. Um, and many, unfortunately, don't seek out further training for themselves, uh, which is a huge problem. And uh, when I, in my experience, when I've trained counselors, I've been, unfortunately, kind of shocked at how very often counselors really don't have um, a lot of education or training in this area, and sometimes they themselves are not very comfortable discussing it, and and that does come out in their work with their clients, uh, unfortunately. And thinking about you know, the, the therapeutic alliance, the relationship between the counselor and the client, that therapeutic alliance is the center of 
the healing aspect of counseling. And if a clinician is not comfortable discussing sexuality, that could actually harm the therapeutic alliance and could be very damaging, um, you know, to the the course of counseling. And I'm glad that you mentioned uh the therapeutic relationship, because there is research, and many of us know, Dr. Scott Miller from Chicago did some research, and so of things that a clinician can kind of control or have a big part of in a session, the therapeutic alliance becomes the most important thing that we have a hand in, and elicits the most change, regardless of technique and credentials and that sort of thing. So I'm glad that you mentioned a therapeutic relationship. So that leads to this question. Why is it important for our clinicians and providers to be knowledgeable on the subject? You know, a lot of training for clinicians orients around identifying our, you know, doing a process of self-reflection where we look at our own education, our own values, our own beliefs, our own personal histories, and try to become self-aware of how that may inform our worldview. So if we don't start with first ourselves kind of identifying what are my beliefs about sexuality, what are the norms that I hold, what are my values, um, then they, we could unintentionally impose these on clients, which could be very harmful to the therapeutic alliance. Um, and because they're, especially in this country, just generally, there's a lack of comprehensive sex education in, in every level of schooling. Um, oftentimes, each of us wants to think that we, we know a lot about sex. People like mm -hmm. to think that they're experts, but um, people often haven't had a lot of education, and so they haven't had the opportunity to do that self-reflection. Um, and this is even more the case when we think about um, diverse sexual populations, uh, especially LGBTQ populations or other types of populations that tend to be thought of as, you know, minorities, like people who engage in non-monogamy or kink or things like that. And it's very hard for people um, from those communities to find uh, counselors who have this skill set to both address their needs in recovery and also be, be culturally competent um, in addressing their uh, sexuality as well. When you talk about those counselors, it, it got me thinking because in our field, in the field of, of SUD counseling, it's been said up to about 50% of individuals that work in the field are in recovery for themselves and how they handled the issue of their own sexuality really can create an issue for, like you said, the therapeutic uh, alliance. So we know the sexuality is difficult to talk about uh, in the general population, but when you took about look at our population of counselors who are in recovery themselves, how they kind of handle that and their growth and learning makes a big difference. Absolutely. And everybody's had a unique experience and it's wonderful when somebody is in recovery and, you know, is able to help other people. Um, what's not great is if that person intentionally or unintentionally is imposing, you know, their, the, the things that they learn from their experience onto the client when it might not be the right thing for the client. And we see that with other things. An individual who uh, is working the field is in recovery may unintentionally uh, push an individual towards their own path of recovery rather than, you know, effectively using the stages of change and helping to meet that client where they are at. So that adds another interesting piece to it. 
Um, it's funny, you know, everybody says that. Everybody says, meet the, go where the client is. Um, but it seems like very often um, there really is a kind of a, a, a small set of things. Okay, go, go to where the client is, but it should look like this. You know, often things to turn out to be the case. Yeah, I've said um, in some writings and things that meeting the client where they're at in this field is often just a punchline. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. And that harm reductionists are individuals who are truly out there meeting where clients uh, are at, yet they receive the most amount of uh, negative feedback and grief for the work that they do. You know, it's interesting you mentioned harm reduction because some of the organizations that I have uh, worked with that have addressed sexuality in a much more direct way are, in fact, harm reduction organizations. I won't name names of organizations, but some of the major uh, social service organizations that I've worked with that provide um, substance use uh, counseling, they provide recovery services and also harm reduction services. It's been the harm reduction-oriented organizations that they, they actually directly address sexuality. It's not left to the side or waiting for somebody to bring it up. They provide um, sexual orient- uh, sexual education to staff when staff get onboarded, and they work to create a culture within the organization that affirms um, all, all sexual identities um, and, and orientations and works to really provide culturally competent services to all clients um, of, you know, of any uh, sexuality. Uh, and I'm not saying that non-harm reduction organizations don't do that. Mm-hmm. I just honestly haven't seen it addressed in, in such a thorough way, um, you know, except in harm reduction organizations. Many of the folks uh, that serve clients see them in the most acute situations possible. So if, if I'm working in a residential environment, be it a detox or a uh, just a longer-term residential program. I may not want to talk about sex, but it's happening there. I've heard anecdotal uh, from individuals uh, that have worked in my own experiences working residentially. That that's certainly not just an undercurrent in residential placements. Oh it's out in the open. It's, really, it's like a it's like a high school, you know. <laughs> and, and people are so I've I've directly witnessed this myself as well. People are in such a vulnerable state. Um, when they're in a residential program, and often within residential programs, there's also like an extreme gender imbalance. So, yes. um, for 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 men who want to be with women, there's very few women, and those women are suddenly become extremely sought after. Um, uh, gays and lesbian and transgender people, on the other hand, um, are often very vulnerable within those uh, residential settings as well, where they might be in the minority, and sometimes on the receiving end of bullying or harassment. Um, and usually these residential places have policies that forbid any type of sexual or even romantic relationship, and yet it happens constantly. Um, and I don't, I'm not, it's not for me to try to tell anybody what their policies should be, um, but it's worth thinking about, you know, um, how this could be addressed in a way that maybe isn't so shaming and punitive. It's there, and it's really difficult uh, to figure out what the best policy may be because it's not talked about, like you said. Um, As we get back into things with the stages of change, that's really important to me and how we work. And I recently had a conversation with Dr. Kathleen Carroll from Yale. Um, 
we discussed how substance use disorder field often deals that there's a theoretical struggle between evidence-based practice and tradition. And one of the most notable traditions is the belief that one should have one year of recovery under their belt before entering an intimate relationship. Look, human nature being what it is, we recognize the difficulty of not only putting that into practice, but I question the overall prescription of such information. Um, You know, the old 13th stepping thing. Um, what are your thoughts about how can we can address these things as we move through the stages of change and really trying to meet clients where they're at? I'm not aware of any scientific evidence that would support this um, belief that you have to wait a year. I think that's a cultural norm um, within the 12-step community. I don't have a particular idea of, you know, what is the quote-unquote right time. Um, you know, I, I, I really was thinking about this. Um, it's obviously very complex. So, you know, not everybody who's in recovery, for example, is single. Some of those people are already in relationships as they are entering uh, the recovery process. And that's very complicated because sometimes the people that they are in relationships with are not joining them in the recovery process. And so, it, you know, the, their partners or intimate um, loved ones can, you know, be a source of, you know, triggers. And that's one issue um, for people who are single. Um, you know, it's again, that's a, an incredibly vulnerable time for somebody who is very early in recovery. And um, I think there's often a desire to seek comfort. And some of the aspects of being in early recovery, like going to meetings um, or engaging in some type of program, you meet people and it's very common and understandable to form. Um, you know, intimate bonds with the people that you meet, whether or not those are sexual in, in nature. So, you know, for some people, you know, I think it, it should just be an, a case-by-case basis. And the person who needs to be making these decisions is the individual who is in recovery. Um, they should be uh, supported in examining, you know, their priorities and, you know, their their triggers and, you know, where they would like to go. Um, but ultimately, the client needs to be the one who decides uh, how they're going to approach um, sexual behavior in recovery. And I think it can be very counterproductive if the clinician is not supporting the client and having their own agency in this process. I mean, again, that could harm the therapeutic alliance if the, the clinician is trying to kind of push the client in one way or another, even if it's coming from a place of of genuine concern. Um, one thing that's very common, I think you mentioned this already, so for a lot of people before they begin the recovery process, many people have been using a substance often for many years. And because sexuality is such a core part of our life, a lot of times sexual, sexual behavior um, and substance use become paired together. And it can be very tricky to disentangle that in, uh, in, in recovery. So, for example, for some people, uh, becoming physically aroused or uh, seeing pornography or running into somebody that they used to be, you know, sexual partners with, that itself could be triggering because it used to be that when they were having sex, they may have been intoxicated or they may have been with people who were also using with them. And so to be in going through the recovery process and trying to 
kind of discover what is your sexuality as a sober person, um, that's going to look different for everybody, uh, but it's certainly an essential part of the recovery process. It affects everyday lives for individuals. Um, and the triggers that come from that can be frightening for people. Uh, when I worked uh, my last clinical job, I had an individual who, um, in the in his early recovery, uh, he could not, and he was uh, using methadone to support his recovery, uh, he could not perform, and it was creating problems at home. And he was really mm-hmm. struggling with the idea that when he was actively using heroin, he could perform. And yeah. he... Uh, you know, I suggested that he talk to a, a doctor about some other options, which he ended up doing. But he was really, really confused with this and didn't necessarily want to know why. He just wanted to know how it could get better. And referring him to the doctor seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, it has served a separate purpose also because the doctor, our doctor at the clinic could say, I'll prescribe this for you one time but you need to see your primary care doctor. So it also got him involved in better health care. Um, so the interchange and interplay of all these different parts of our lives really come together, and that that has to be a part of it. Yeah, it's really true. Um, and for the client that you mentioned, so his frustration with feeling that he's not performing well sexually could be a trigger to relapse because if he's thinking back from when he was using and he was able to perform then, you know, that certainly could, could be a powerful trigger for a lot of people. Um, and I've worked with so many clients that haven't had sober sex or haven't had it in years. And so they associate being sexual with, you know, being intoxicated at the same time. Uh, and I've had some clients report to me that trying to engage in sober sexual, be- sober sexual behavior felt very unsatisfying mm-hmm. because they had memories of, when they were intoxicated, kind of feeling euphoric or feeling very uninhibited. And they missed that sense. And the sober sex uh, didn't feel as good as as sex used to feel. Um, and speaking about disinhibition, you know, for a lot of people, um, anxiety about their own sexuality and their own sexual behavior um, and about their body is often um, a trigger to use some kind of substances so that you can feel disinhibited and relax and enjoy sex in a way that maybe would have been difficult to sober. So as you're going through the recovery process, um, dealing with anxiety and dealing with one's own discomfort with one's own body, one's own sexuality is core to the recovery process. I think it, it... must be addressed in order for somebody to really build a a healthy, happy, meaningful life as a sober person, because sexuality is part of that. That's very interesting. And and I would agree. Very true. Um, Just kind of to wrap it up. And I know we really just scratched the surface here. um, But as we look at the majority of folks who will hear this are, are probably practitioners. So let me ask you this. Is there a specific or even a general set of knowledge, skills, and abilities that really would be necessary for a clinician or a member of a, an individual support system uh, to have to effectively address sexuality-related issues for their folks that are in recovery? 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of basic things. One, um, first and foremost, like back to the therapeutic alliance, it, you must have the skill to be comfortable with discussing sexuality explicitly and in whatever terms the client, you know, wants to use. So, you know, people need to feel comfortable having um, explicit discussions of sex. Uh, and again, going back to that part of that for many of us needs to be first self-reflection to identify our own beliefs, values, and biases so that we're not imposing them on the client. Um, basic education on human sexual development so that we understand kind of basic aspects about sexuality, um, education about sexual identity, gender identity, um, and the variation of sexual expression. That, that's a basic education that everybody um, needs to have, especially for, um, you know, diverse populations that often get neglected, such as lesbian, gay, bisexual, asexual, queer, uh, and transgender or non-binary people. Uh, a lot of uh, counselors have not really received very much training about that in school. And so ethically, um, you know, we're bound to continue our education on our own. That's an important point. I'm glad you said that. And I think that that's something that um, we struggle with or that that I struggle with when I work, uh, you know, for a credentialing body. Um, I see a lot of people wanting to get trainings just to get the hours in to renew a credential instead of what their ethical goal or ethical guideline is to continue their professional development. Um, so I think that yeah. that's important. I'm glad you said that. Um, one thing that I do want to uh, just kind of get out there before we close out is, is under no circumstances are we saying um, that you don't pay attention to gender roles and to gender issues. Um, I'm not real comfortable with the idea of male clinicians entering a conversation about sexuality with a female client. So we want to take all of those kind of things into consideration. Um, and you're not certainly prescribing who should talk to who you're just talking about you know, what the knowledge, skills, and abilities are that somebody should have? Yeah, I think um, a client should be the person who decides which type of clinician is the right person for them. Mm -hmm. um, as, um, you know, people who, as for clinicians serving clients, they need to be prepared to serve a diverse variety of clients. Um, and I actually, my preference would be that the clinician should actually broach the subject with the client instead of waiting for the client to bring it up because the, the client may be anxious or, you know, feel ashamed um, about aspects of their sexual behavior, their sexual identity. Um, and so I think it's really important, you know, again, as part of the therapeutic alliance for the clinician to show the client, this is part of what we can discuss and, and it's okay for us to talk about this. And if the clinician is different in some way from the client, for example, I'm a woman and I've counseled um, many, you know, gay and bisexual men. And, you know, I, I'm not a gay or bisexual man. And so I've often brought it up and said, you know, what's it like for you to talk about your sexuality with a woman? How does that feel for you? Um, and so I'm, I'm not saying who should speak to who. I think the mm -hmm. client needs to be in charge of deciding who's the right person for them. But clinicians should be prepared to address it with all of their clients. I, I like that. Thank you for saying that and clarifying that for me. Um, I know that when I work in working clinically, 
um, what we saw were male clients were more willing to discuss it with female clinicians in our small environment, um, possibly for the lack of judgment that they would feel from another male or something. But the, the females that, that work there were certainly hearing more of that um, from male clients. Um, and, and there was a cover level with these these uh, women that were working. They were trained and they were really comfortable with having that uh, discussion. Yeah. I, 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 you know, unfortunately, I've, I've worked with some clinicians or trained some clinicians that weren't comfortable when their clients brought it up and had a lot of feelings. You know, for example, I've uh, worked with women clinicians who felt uncomfortable when men were talking about, you know, pornography or things like that that they may have had beliefs about. And they, in subtle ways, communicated their discomfort to the client. Um, and I, I know, um, I, I know of clients who have dropped out of counseling mm-hmm. because they didn't feel like their clinician. I'm not trying to direct this at women clinicians specifically, but people will drop out of counseling if they feel like the clinician is not comfortable or maybe um, has judgments about their sexuality. Yeah, and I and I'm not sure that it's so gender based because if a if a client is speaking about a history of uh, using prostitution to support their uh, addiction, men and women will often show discomfort with that. Yeah, a lot of people are uncomfortable, um, you know, discussing when if a client has um, been uh, visited sex workers, um, and I wish that would change. Um, visiting a sex worker is, is not necessarily um, a harmful behavior. For some people, it can be harmful, but for others, it can be part of healthy sexual expression. So I think it should, again, you know, every person is unique, and we should listen to the client um, and be guided by their own experience and how they felt about it, you know, um, instead of having kind of our own preconceived judgment about the meaning of a particular type of behavior. Great. Thank you very much for saying that. That's, again, more information that I wasn't aware of. And and for me, I appreciate that. Um, I want to say thanks, uh, Dr. Koken, for calling in and and for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I hope you're staying safe and healthy down there in New York. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Yeah, you keep, keep safe and take care of yourself. I will. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Dr. Koken for joining us and for sharing her expertise on this often misunderstood and very difficult subject to talk about. We hope you join us again for our next episode. Music.